from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Hello, I'm Cheryl Kennedy at the Library of Congress. It's my pleasure to introduce Robert Caro, who is the winner of two Pulitzer Prizes, two National Book Critics Circle Awards, and the National Book Award, among many other honors. He is the author of several critically acclaimed books about the 36th President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson. Mr. Carroll, you've spent more than 30 years researching and writing about Lyndon Johnson with a final volume yet to be published. What aspects of Johnson's character or career most fascinates you? Well, his use uh, of political power. You know, I don't regard these books as just the biography of Lyndon Johnson. I never had any interest in writing the life of a great man, whether it be Robert Moses or Lyndon Johnson. I, my books are studies of political power, and the thing that fascinates me most about Johnson, and that has just gets more fascinating the, the longer I get into it, is his absolute genius in the use of political power. Now, you've written about uh, Johnson's legislative genius. Um, in his recent review of your latest book uh, the 30, on the 36th president, Bill Clinton credits Johnson with, quote, more ability to move legislation through the House and Senate than just about any other president in history. How do you think Johnson's legislative skills would fare in today's congressional climate? Well, they probably wouldn't, he, he probably wouldn't approach things the same way because it's a different atmosphere. But I think he had such a genius in um, acquiring and using power that uh, he, would become a, he would become a legislative force no matter what the conditions were. You know, the nature of political genius, part of the nature, part of the nature of political genius is that it can do something where no one else could do it before. Before Johnson became majority leader of the Senate, the Senate really had been in the, the same uh, almost uh, dysfunctional body for a century since the Civil War. He becomes majority leader in 1955 and is majority leader for six years. And during those six years, the, cent the Senate is a center of government energy and ingenuity and creativity in Washington. He leaves, and the Senate almost immediately goes back to being a dysfunctional body. So he was almost unique in his, in his ability to make it work. Um, conditions are different today. You have to approach things differently today. But Johnson, would, no, no matter what situation he found himself in as a young man, as a congressman, always found a way to uh, get power for himself out of the conditions in some institution and make the institution work. Was this an innate trait that he had, or did he learn it? Seems to have had it almost. <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, he seems to have had it almost from his earliest days. Uh, we see him uh, at college creating a political organization uh, where there had been, it was in a, a, a small college in Texas, where campus politics had never mattered. He makes it matter, creates a campus political organization, and that organization helps him 
when he's appointed to his first federal job as administrator, the Texas administrator of the National Youth Administration, and when he goes to Congress. When he's not when he goes to Congress, but when he is running for Congress. Now, in this election season, one thinks about the extraordinary conditions under which President Johnson was inaugurated following Kennedy's assassination. By comparison, his second inaugural drew a record 1.2 million people, a record not broken until President Obama's 2009 inaugural. (laughs) I didn't know that. Now, how do you think uh, he felt about his second second inaugural, considering the tragic circumstances of his first one? Well, you know, um, that's another good question. He knew, you know, like the first inaugural, his main task is to create in America a sense of continuity, of stability, uh, so that the country will feel that although President Kennedy was assassinated, the country is still on a firm, steady course. So his key words in his first speech are, let us continue. That's not the first inaugural, but that's, that's his first speech, the speech he gives to the joint session of Congress four days after Kennedy is assassinated. Now, I, then, he comes to re, then he realizes that now first he pushes through Kennedy's uh, stalled legislation, the Civil Rights Bill, uh, the Tax Cut Bill, among among that, those pieces of legislation. But then he tells friends, now it's time to make the presidency my own. And in uh, his first inaugural speech, which is in January 1964, uh, he sets out a new co- a new course, a new a new policy: the War on Poverty which is his great initiative, and he follows that up with the great society. So we see a transition from continuity to making the presidency his own. You've recently said that Barack Obama is Lyndon Johnson's legacy. Can you elaborate on that, please? Yes. When Lyndon Johnson sets out to pass the Voting Rights Act, black people in America are are so restricted in their voting, particularly in the South, but in the North also, that only 11% of the eligible black, of black voters who are, eligible to, who are eligible to vote actually cast ballots. Physical intimidation is used against them in the South. It is made very difficult for them to register and economic um, intimidation Losing your job if you if you register is used against them. Johnson passes the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Forty-three years, which really and he, which really bring Black Americans fully into the American political process. And 43 years later, in 2008, which really is just a blink of history's eye, there is an African American in the White House. That's why what I mean by saying that Barack Obama is Lyndon Johnson's legacy. Now, you mentioned the Voting Rights Act um, in 1965. Obviously, there are con- some concerns that um, that issue is being revisited. Yes. Do you think, what do you think about that? Is there some validity <laughs> in that? Uh, 
you know, legislation always has to be revisited. Conditions change, um, and you have to take another look at things. But the basic, the basics, the great stride for social justice that the Voting Rights Act is, that can't be changed. That shouldn't be changed. You know, Martin Luther King said, the moral arc of the universe bends slowly, but it bends towards justice. Well, with that Voting Rights Act, Lyndon Johnson gave that moral arc a real bend. Uh, he made it bend. And um, I don't think, even if this act is revisited, that will ever be uh, reversed. Good news. Uh, one more question. <laughs> one more question. Good news, good news if I'm right. <laughs> the nation will be marking the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. The challenges faced by Lincoln are being revisited, most notably a nation deeply divided on the issue of race. Like Lincoln, Johnson's true motives on promoting racial equality have been questioned. Have you come to any conclusions about that? Yes. Um, you know, the reason it's questioned, and of course it's a legitimate reason to question it, is that for no less than 20 years in Congress, from 1937 when he came to Congress as a young representative from Texas, to 1957, his record was on the side of the South. He not only voted uh, with the South on civil rights, but he was a Southern strategist. He wasn't just a Southern soldier in the Congress and Senate. He was a Southern strategist. In fact, he was the protege of the segregationist leader, Richard Brevard Russell of Georgia, uh, who was the head of this, you know, the renowned and powerful Southern caucus, the Southern Bloc in Congress. But in 1957, Johnson changes and pushes through the first civil rights bill since Reconstruction. In, I, th I think, 82 years, wish you would check that, it says in the introduction to the book, but I believe it's 82, the first civil rights act in 82 years. Now, people therefore say, did he do this just because of political opportunism? And of course, political opportunism, as always with Johnson, plays a role in it. He realizes he's not going to be able to become the Democrat. He's still hoping to become the Democratic presidential nominee in 1960. And he realizes he's never going to get that unless he changes his position on civil rights. But did he always want to change his position on civil rights? Yes. Uh, and I'll tell you how I think I know that. Well, let me just go back. I say in the book that he always had this compassion this true, deep compassion to help poor people, and particularly poor people of color. But his overriding, even stronger than the compassion, was his ambition. And as long as uh, ambition and compassion were pointing in different directions, the ambition saying he had to be on the side of the South to rise to power in the Senate, then the ambition would always win. But when they are aligned, when compassion and ambition finally are pointing in the same direction, then Lyndon Johnson becomes a force for, inter, for uh, racial justice, unequaled certainly since, Lake, since Lincoln. And how do I know that, how do I feel I know that this was sincere? Because when he's uh, 20 years old, 
he's going to the small college in Texas, and he's so poor that he has to drop out of school and teach for a year. And he teaches at the what's called the Mexican School in Catula, Texas, little dusty town of Catula, Texas. The kid I wrote after to, the, the, the kid, no teacher. I, this is a quote from my uh, book, my first book, The Path to Power. No teacher had ever cared if these kids learned or not. This teacher cared. And not only did he work so hard at teaching the kids, he taught the janitor. That's how I feel I know he was sincere. The janitor's name was Tomas Coronado. Johnson wanted him to learn English. He bought him a textbook. And every day before and after school, they'd sit on the front steps of the school. And, and Coronado says, Johnson would pronounce, I would repeat, Johnson would spell, I would repeat. I believe he always wanted to help. And he gets to be president, and he tells his, one of his aides, Richard Goodwin, who asks the same question you do, really is in a, in a more veiled way, is this sincere? And he says, you know, I'll tell you something. I swore back then when I was teaching those kids that if I ever had the power to help them, I'd use it. And now I'll tell you a secret. Now I have the power, and I mean to use it. Yes, I think Johnson's uh, compassion, his desire for racial justice was, was sincere and well, very deep. Mr. Carroll, thank you very much for an enlightening conversation. Sure. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.